Daniel chapter 11, if you've got your Bible, let me invite you to turn to uh, the 11th chapter of Daniel, where we've been the last couple of weeks. The last three chapters of Daniel are a prophetic vision of the future that was given to Daniel for the sake of God's people. And really the prophecy that is revealed in this section provides a detailed glimpse into future history from the time of Daniel all the way up to the end of the world when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Now, while I admit this chapter may be tough to read as far as all the details and things that are there, keep in mind that the details are not meant to confuse us, but rather they're meant to assure us of God's sovereign control over history. And really, I think that's one of the main emphasis that I keep coming back to uh, in our study of Daniel is that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. And it's God who raises up kings and kingdoms and takes those kings and kingdoms down. And he's moving history to that one climactic moment when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, all of this would have been a very important emphasis as far as God's people are concerned in Daniel's day. Uh, They had been in exile for 70 years because of their sin and disobedience. They're now on the verge of returning home. A remnant of those Jews had returned home, and yet they discovered that things were not easy for them there in the land, but rather they were difficult. The work of rebuilding the city would be opposed, and there would be political conflict happening Uh, And the powers that be of the day would make life miserable for God's people. It would be one thing right after the other, and it would seem like God's people would get caught up in the middle of all of that. And that's one of the reasons why this chapter is so very important. Because it's a prophecy that would help prepare God's people for future hardships. But it also reveals how God is sovereign over it all, and he will accomplish his purposes for his people. Now, much of this chapter, I've already showed you how uh, really through verse 35, much of this is ancient history. It was future prophecy in Daniel's day, but at least through verse 35, it's ancient history, prophecy that has now been fulfilled. And yet, there still is an element that is future from verse 36 through the end of verse 45, And that's the passage that we're going to look at in our time together this morning. Now, I showed you how really the first 20 verses of this chapter sort of summarizes a 355-year period of history. And then from verse 21 through verse 35, uh, the emphasis is on a 12-year period of history as the prophetic focus zooms in on a leader known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, as far as world leaders are concerned, this guy was not very impressive, uh, was not very influential on the world stage, unlike many of his predecessors, like Alexander and Xerxes of the Persian Empire, or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. However, the reason that Antiochus is given so much emphasis in this 11th chapter of Daniel is because of the type uh, or prototype that he is. Because in many ways, he provides a preview 
of what the Antichrist is going to be like in the last days. And so really the last three or four prophecies that we've seen in this passage, as far as from chapter 7 all the way now through chapter 11, uh, there's information that is progressively revealed to Daniel about this final world leader. The reason that so much is said about him in Daniel is because of how he will uniquely impact and influence and even persecute the people of Israel in the last days or the tribulation period. So if you've got your Bible there, I want you to begin reading with me. uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse number 36. The Bible says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, and by the way, notice that phrase there, at the time of the end. It's the same phrase that's used back up in verse 35, which marks a transition in this chapter. And at the close of chapter 11, on into chapter 12, that phrase, time of the end, or the end, it's going to be used at least nine times. And so the idea is the angel that's revealing this prophecy to Daniel is taking him all the way up to the end of world history, all the way up to that 70th week or 70th seven from the vision in Daniel chapter nine. Daniel's 70th week is also referred to as the tribulation period. And so really what you have in these verses at the end of chapter 11 is information about that tribulation period. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him But the king of the north will rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these will be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, I want to show you something in case you're there and you're thinking, well, I'm skeptical because it seems to me that this is just referring to Antiochus, right? No, because again, verse 35, there's that phrase, time of the end, which serves as a very important clue. 
And if that's not enough, the angel continues in this prophecy on into chapter 12 and says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24. Again, this is, this is Daniel's 70th week, or this is the great tribulation, the end part of that tribulation period. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now look at verse 2 there in chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Now, it's obvious then when you read on into chapter 12 that this angel is taking Daniel all the way up to the end of history as we know it. And a key player in the last days will be this figure known as the man of sin or the Antichrist as he's referred to elsewhere. And so I want to speak from that subject once more, the future man of sin. We've seen how Antiochus in many ways serves as a preview of what he will be like, but here we're given some important information about this individual as far as his agenda and the character that he will possess. Now, a few things that you need to know from this passage. Number one, notice with me the character that's revealed about this future man of sin. Uh, his character is mentioned there in verses 36 and 37, which, by the way, this is not the first time that Daniel has been given uh, prophetic information about this antichrist figure in the last days. He's given information back in chapter 7 as well as chapter 8 and a little bit of information in chapter 9 about that prophecy of the 70 weeks. Well, here in verse 36, Daniel's taken much further into the future and he's sort of given a glimpse of what the end will involve for the people of Israel. Yes, they faced a crisis under Antiochus Epiphanes, whose agenda and ideology made life miserable for the Jews, and it resulted in the persecution and slaughter of many of the Jews. He committed the abomination of desolation by setting up an image of Zeus there in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that that abomination of desolation committed by Antiochus will serve as a pattern of something that is still future that this future man of sin will do in the last days. So what is the character of this future man of sin? What does the text reveal about his nature? Well, for starters, notice that Daniel is told that he will do as he wills. Now the ESV translation, which I use, <clears throat> verse 36 begins in this way, and the king shall do as he wills. However, other translations like the New American Standard or even other older translations uh, translate the Hebrew text in this way, and I think it's more appropriate, then the king will do according to his will. And that word then that's there sort of ties us back in with that transition in verse 35, the time of the end. The idea is at the time of the end, then the king will do as he wills. 
And for that reason, the Antichrist, one of the titles that's given to him throughout history has been the willful king. It's taken right from this passage here in Daniel chapter 11. Now, Antichrist, as far as the title, uh, that only occurs in the, the epistles of John. It's, it's the apostle John who uses that word to describe this future world dictator. But basically, the apostle John says that Antichrist, it's all about denial of the faith. And it's the Apostle John who shows us that Antichrist is both a spirit at work in the world as well as a man who will one day embody that spirit. 1 John chapter 2, John says this, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard, Antichrist is coming, but even now, many Antichrists have appeared, and from this, we know that it's the last hour. So John is saying in that text, that, that antichrist, many antichrists have already come. That word antichrist means in the place of Christ. It's this idea of one who sets himself up as a savior for humanity. Uh, even one who opposes Christ. Many antichrists have come, John says. And so really every generation has known its fair share of antichrist figures. However, there still is one future figure who's going to emerge onto the world stage, who's going to be the head of a final world system, and this man will be known as Antichrist. And his agenda will be absolutely opposite that of heaven's agenda, God's agenda. He will oppose Christ and everything that Christ represents. John goes on in 1 John 2 and says, Who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Chapter 4, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now already working in the world. So that is, there's a spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. It's that spirit of Antichrist that rejects the need for a savior, that rejects the need for a crucified, buried, and risen savior. Second John 1.7, John says this, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. This willful king that Daniel is referring to here in Daniel chapter 11 is also this same individual that John's referring to. And really, there's a multiplicity of passages uh, in the Bible that give us clues uh, as to the character of this individual. Uh, One such passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to encourage uh, the Thessalonian church who thought that they had missed the return of Jesus and thought that they were experiencing the wrath of God and the day of the Lord and all of that. And Paul writes and says, listen, let no one deceive you concerning that day. He says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The word rebellion there translates a Greek word. It's the same word we get the word apostasy from. There will be a falling away from the faith in the last days. That is, there will be those who had formerly professed God, faith in Christ, professed to be believers, but when cultural pressure is ramped up, they will apostatize. They will turn away from that faith. 
So that rebellion happens first, and then he says the man of sin is then revealed, or the man of lawlessness. So Antichrist, according to the Apostle Paul, he's referred to here as the man of lawlessness. And he goes on and says that this figure will oppose every god. He will make himself the object of worship, so much so that he sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God. And that's that future abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24. But notice that he's referred to as this man of lawlessness. And the language comes right out of Daniel chapter 11 with this willful king that's being described here in verse number 36. Then the king will do according to his will. As a man of lawlessness, he will set himself against the law of God. He will set himself up against the revealed truth of God. And he will declare himself to be truth. It's his way or the highway. It's his prerogative. That's the only thing that this antichrist will be about. It's all about self-will. And so the ideology that he possesses then is one in which man is the sum of all things. Man is at the center, not God. Now, folks, I don't have to work too hard to convince you that that spirit is already at work in our world today. In so many ways, this describes uh, the character and the mentality of Western culture. And keep in mind that I believe that Daniel, through Daniel, it was revealed that this Antichrist figure is going to be someone who sits at the head of a final Western world empire, some revived version of the former Roman Empire. And when you look at the spirit that's already characteristic of the West, Folks, can it be best described as an antichrist spirit in which man is enthroned as the sum of all things? So he will do as he wills. That's this guy's character. Uh, And then he's going to deceive the world. Part of his strategy is going to involve deception. Back in chapter 8 of Daniel, Daniel was told that his power would be great, but not by his own power. In other words, there'll be a satanic quality about this antichrist that leads others to get behind him and his agenda. Again, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the coming of the lawless man is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, and wicked deception. So the chief tactic that this future man of sin is going to use involves deception. He will be someone skillful in the art of deception, which no doubt that means he'll be someone with a charismatic personality. Daniel 8.25 says that by his cunning, he will make deceit prosper in his hand. In other words, he'll be calculating. He'll understand the issues that make people tick. There'll be a charismatic quality about his life. And listen, we live in a day where people are now more drawn toward charisma in leadership than they are character in leadership. It doesn't matter what a man says. The only thing that matters is how I feel about what he says. You give him a, a candidate who has this ability to enthrall them and, 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 and keep them just propped up with vague rhetoric, they'll follow him like sheep to the slaughter. 
Social media has made this very thing that much more pronounced. This future man of sin will set himself up as savior, but make no mistake about it, he will be inspired by Satan who is a master counterfeiter. And deception will be his number one tactic. So he'll do as he wills. Deception will be his chief weapon. But then ultimately, listen to this, he's going to deify himself. Verse 36 says that he will exalt himself. He will magnify himself above every God, even speaking astonishing things against the God of gods. The NASB translates it this way. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. So in keeping with his secular ideology, this future man of sin will be full of himself, He'll be proud, he'll be haughty. In his own mind, he will be great, Daniel 8, 25. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so much so that he sets himself up in the temple as God. John, writing in Revelation 13, says that the world will worship the beast, and they will say to themselves, who is like the beast, and who can fight against the beast? So he's going to deify himself. And much of what he says will be a dead ringer as to his real motive. By the way, what did Jesus who said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? What's down in the well always comes up in the bucket. Have you, have you done close personal inventory of your words lately? Is your mouth full of lies and gossip and blasphemy and innuendo? If so... You're speaking the language of Antichrist. Verse 37 says he's going to pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, nor to the one beloved by women. The idea here is that this man of sin, will, he will reject his ancestral faith. And if he's coming out of the West, that sort of makes sense because so much of the West has been characterized throughout the centuries by the Judeo-Christian ethic. But what does this mean when it says that he will pay no attention to the God beloved by women? Well, most commentators see this as a reference or a messianic reference. Uh, the idea of giving birth to the Messiah, this was the messianic hope of Jewish women. and Jewish mothers longed uh, for their sons to be that Messiah figure who would rescue and redeem Israel. It goes all the way back to the promise made in Genesis 3.15, how the seed of the woman, that's the Messiah, would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So when you look at what's being said here, the idea seems to be that this man of sin will reject his ancestral religion. He'll have no regard to the one beloved by women. Perhaps this is reference to Messiah. So here's a guy who doesn't see himself in need of a Savior. He himself is Savior. Alistair Begg says something else that I think is very helpful, though. He says that the language of the text seems to include this idea that he will have no regard for the foundational elements found in God's original creative order, especially as it relates to gender and sexuality. So the idea, then, is that there's this secular ambition 
And secular worldview drives this figure. He embodies the spirit of the age and will be its chief proponent and its greater poster child. Now, here's the thing. We tend to think of the man of sin, the Antichrist, as being so unlike the system that gets behind him and follows it. No, in many ways, he's just simply the face of a movement that's already begun in the world. He's just the head of an empire that's already at work culturally, politically, religiously in the world of fallen humanity. So what will the spirit of the age be in the last days? Well, we don't have to look too hard to find the answer to that because Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then he mentions 19 or 20 specific characteristics of the age, the last days. In those days, he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying the power thereof. And so he pretty much sums up the spirit of Antichrist in those verses. And that's the spirit that will characterize so much of the culture in the last days. Now, the thing is, I think one of the things we miss in the biblical teaching about Antichrist is the way in which he will seek to control how people think, what people believe, and who they worship. He will seek to subvert the kingdom of God through his own character, through his own agenda. And keep in mind, Revelation 13 says that it's the dragon or the serpent, Satan himself, who gives Antichrist his platform and his power, and his influence. Ladies and gentlemen, do you not know that the devil has always boasted of the kingdoms of this world? That's what he tried to give Jesus in the temptation uh, there in Matthew chapter 4. All of the kingdoms of the world I will give you if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, hit the road, Jack. The kingdoms already belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they came by way of the cross and the empty tomb, crushing the head of the serpent in obedience to the Father's plan. But Antichrist is going to be the guy who does the deal with the devil. So that's his character. Uh, But what about something else? What about his career? What about the actual agenda itself that he pursues? What about his career, the things that he will go about doing? Well, I think there's some key information given there in verses 38 through 43. We don't have time to go through all of those details. But as far as his career is concerned, to begin with, he will be a man who desires power. He'll honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Rather than bowing the knee and worshiping God, he's going to be someone who's going to worship power. Power will be his ultimate pursuit. And the text goes on to say that with the help of a foreign God, he'll conquer much. The idea is uh, power is what he pursues, and power is what he receives, and it's through power and powerful means by which he achieves dominance. 
Something else that's mentioned here in the text, uh, down in verse 39, is that he'll divide the land for a price. Now again, keep in mind that this whole conflict being outlined in chapter 11 is over the glorious land. All of the conflict between the kings of the south and the kings of the north, all the way up through verse 35, it all centers around dominating the land of Israel. Which, by the way, isn't it an amazing thing that throughout history, the land of Israel always just seems to be at the epicenter of focus? I mean, even in so much of our own news today, so much headlines center around the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because that land had been promised to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. The land was promised to Israel. And so much debate centers around who controls what territory in the Middle East. And political leaders of every stripe have all looked to solve the problem in the Middle East, but to no avail. Well, in the last days, maybe the Antichrist is the man who finally seems to be able to solve the problem. Maybe it's Antichrist who finally is able to broker a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Maybe it's the Antichrist who's able to broker a deal as far as the Temple Mount is concerned and the reconstruction of the temple there on the Temple Mount. But in reality, this man who shows up promising to offer the world peace is really going to drag the world to the brink of war, even Armageddon itself. And he'll dominate through power. And that's really the message that's here as far as his career is concerned. And ultimately, it's going to lead to catastrophe and chaos and persecution and death as far as the Jews are concerned. And it'll be the time of Jacob's trouble, a terrible time for Israel. And yet, the reason that all of this is revealed in Daniel chapter 11 is, listen, it's to show God's people that God is sovereign over it all no matter how bad it may get. And you'll notice this phrase, indignation, that Antichrist, he, he's going to seem to prosper until the time of indignation is complete. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the tribulation. And the fact that his time has been appointed and fixed, and as such, it will come to an end, because God has said so. And that's the way it always is with the kingdoms of men. They're short-lived fixed and determined by an omnipotent, sovereign God who is indeed seated on the throne of glory, who will reign forever and ever, no matter how things may look to us on the ground. So one final thing that I want you to see is the condemnation of this man of sin. Ultimately, what will be his end? Well, the end of verse 45 says that he will come to his end with none to help him. Yes, he's going to drag the world to war. He's going to go out with fury and devote many to destruction. He's going to bring the world to the point of Armageddon. But he will meet his end. Which, by the way, you know our world is really no stranger to war. You go all the way back to the beginning of our country in 1776. I read where America has experienced conflict roughly every 25 years or so. So there's hardly been a generation that has not seen its sons and daughters sent off to war of some kind. But interestingly enough, the last century in particular, the 20th century, has seen more bloodshed than the previous 20 centuries combined. Did you know that? 
The death toll from war in the 20th century alone is upwards of 110 million. I read something this week that sort of puts it in perspective. Everybody says, you know, this past year has been such a difficult year, one that we're going to remember, our children are going to remember, and I get that. But imagine you were born in the year 1900. Many people would think, well, that's a simple time of life. <laughs> but by the time you turn 14, in 1914, World War I starts and ends by the time you turn 18, and 22 million people died in that war including many of your friends who enlisted to defend freedom on the European continent. Later that year, the Spanish flu pandemic strikes, and it continues until you turn 20. Approximately 50 million people die from the Spanish flu in those two years around the world. On your 29th birthday, the stock market crashes on Black Tuesday, Leading to the Great Depression, unemployment hits 25%. Things stay that way until you turn 33. The country nears collapse along with the world economy. If you were fortunate, you had a job that paid $300 a year or barely a dollar a day. By the time you turn 39, World War II starts as Germany invades Poland. And you're not even over the hill yet. If you lived in London or most of the continent of Europe, the bombing of your neighborhood or the invasion of your country by foreign soldiers and tanks, this was a daily event. Between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 million perish in the war. When you're 50, the Korean War starts, five million people die. By the time you turn 55, the Vietnam War begins and goes on for 20 years. Four million people die. On your 62nd birthday, there's a Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a tipping point in the Cold War, and life on our planet could have ended with a few nuclear launch codes in the hands of a few people. And all of that to the time you turn 62. Now listen. Has the last 100 years not been the rocky, turbulent years for life on planet Earth? And the 21st century doesn't seem to be off to a better start either. You say, oh, pastor, you're negative. You ought to believe in humanity. You ought to be confident and be positive. And let me tell you something. I believe in the God who made humanity in his own image. But one thing I understand about humanity is that humanity is fallen. Humanity is in sin. Humanity is in desperate need of rescue and the grace of Almighty God. And left up to the grace of God and the restraining hand of God, we destroy ourselves. That's what humanity would do without God's intervention. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, folks, that the time is coming when the restrainer is going to be removed. And the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. You say, well, what does that refer to? Well, many think that it refers to the rapture of the church. The spirit of God who indwells the church. I don't know. I like to believe that. Sounds good to me. Praise God. Even so, come Lord Jesus, rapture us out of here. But one thing I can tell you this is that times become increasingly difficult for the people of God God introduces pain into our lives, but he always has a purpose behind it, and it's to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. 
So God's going to use all of this tribulation that's foretold in Daniel chapter 11. Let me tell you what he's going to do. He's going to bring Israel to Israel's breaking point when Israel hits her knees in repentance and faith and turns to Jesus Christ. The prophet Zechariah, listen, on that day, the Bible says that they're going to look upon the one that they pierced. And they're going to mourn. And they're going to repent of their sin and they're going to turn to him. And things will get that bad in the tribulation period that Israel. Paul says in Romans 11 that all of Israel will be saved. That's right. Now I'm through. But someone says, well, what do I do with a passage like this in my own life personally? How does this impact the way that I'm going to go about living as far as my life tomorrow morning? Folks, the number one takeaway that I I take away from this is that God is sovereign over history. And that Jesus Christ is king. And there ought to be a sense of urgency that if you don't know Jesus, all of this should bring you to that breaking point in your own life where you humble yourself and you confess your sin and you repent and you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? In the middle of all of this prophecy there in chapter 11 is the wonderful promise in verse 32 that I love so much. Where Daniel is told that the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. In spite of the crisis the crisis that came through the persecution of Antiochus, in spite of the crisis and the persecution that's going to come through Antichrist and that final Antichrist system, the people who know their God personally through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to stand firm, which means they're going to be able to process what's going on in the world around them, but it's not going to move them. It's not going to shake them. It's not going to rattle them to their core. They're not going to throw up their hands and quit. They're going to stand firm because they know their God. And because of that, they're going to take action. And that's my prayer for us as a church, is that the truth of what we've seen in Daniel motivates us to action like never before. You know, I love Titus 2.13. says we're to live godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are his own possession, zealous for good works. And my, we've got work to do, don't we, church? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning personally, let me urge you, while you have opportunity and time right now, turn from your sin. And in faith, look to Christ who died for you on the cross, who rose again from the dead, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, and who one day is going to be coming again and establish a kingdom upon the earth. That means we've got hope. We don't have to panic. We don't have to fear. All this stuff shouldn't make you afraid. But instead, it ought to make you aware 
and give you assurance. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we do indeed want to be people, your own special possession, who are zealous for good works. God, the world desperately needs to know Jesus. Our neighbors need to know Jesus. Our family needs to know Jesus. Our children, oh God, they need to know Jesus. May we lead in that way. And we point others to you in that way. Time is so short. Eternity is so long. God, give us urgency. For Jesus' sake. Amen.